host of Speak Your Truth, thank you for joining us today. We have with us Dr. Candace Williams, who is a nationally recognized researcher and licensed mental health professional who works as a sports psychologist at The Ohio State University. Prior to that, she worked with the players in the NFL, helping them recover from their mental illness. Um, everyone says that she really helped them. All the testimonies and reviews that I've read, everyone loves her. Um, she really even helped me, and we didn't even do a counseling session, just a podcast episode. So hope you guys learned a lot from her. She's also been featured in popular press publications such as Men's Health Magazine, NCAA Champion Magazine, and USA Today Sports. Please listen up and pay attention. You do not want to miss this. Speak your truth. I have Dr. Candace Williams here with me this morning. She is a phenomenal woman. She works at Ohio State University, where I'm from. Super excited about that. She is a sports mental health prof uh, professional, an athletic counselor at Ohio State, like I said, and she's also a contributor to the Think Up app, which we're also going to talk about. Dr. Candice, how are you doing this morning? I am doing great, great. Happy to be here, and thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for being on here, man. Like I was telling you before we started, this is like truly manifestation for me. So I'm so excited. Um, did not know how we were going to connect, but just glad that we are and super excited to have you on the show. Do you mind telling us about where you're from uh, and your educational background also? Awesome. So I am, you know, a Southern gym, as I like to say. I'm from Texas. Some people consider that to be the South. Some people do not. But mm -hmm. I'm from a small town called Huntsville, Texas, which is an mm -hmm. hour north of uh, Houston okay. and two hours south of Dallas. So, you know, if you were to drive from Houston to Dallas, you'd cross through my hometown. Nice. Um, you know, born and, raised in, born and raised in Texas. And so, um, you know, always knew I wanted to pursue a career mm -hmm. in mental health. I just didn't necessarily know what that path looked like. So when I uh, started undergrad, I went to Texas A&M University and right. majored in psychology. And uh, I originally wanted to be a forensic psychologist and work in the criminal justice field. Whoa. And during my undergrad, yeah, <laughs> I wanted to be like a criminal minds investigator. Mm -hmm. um, during my... Um, <laughs> And I'll get into kind of later into the story. I actually um, work with criminals uh, wow. as well. So when I um, originally started out, I wanted to do criminal justice and I took a sports psychology class in my undergrad uh, and was hooked. Wow. Um, and so explored that as an option, but was really excuse me, gung ho on like, ooh, I want to you know be a CSI criminal minds type person. And so when I graduated my undergrad and decided that I wanted to uh, pursue a master's degree, I was working as an academic advisor mm -hmm. um, at a university called Sam Houston State University. And so during that time, I actually interfaced with a lot of athletes uh, who were criminal justice majors because I was the head of that advisement center. And I worked with the athletic department, making sure that the athletes were registered for the necessary classes and on track in terms of their um, degree completion and any time that the coaches would have, you know, uh, prospects in terms of, you know, any student athletes that they were recruiting, they would always bring them to me to kind of talk about criminal justice as a major, uh, different things that they could do career-wise, talk about our program. So even in that position, I interfaced with athletes to that degree, but I found that my students in general loved coming to talk to me yeah. about, you know, just everything that they had going on. And so I was like, well, 
is there a way that I can do this professionally that I can get paid? And so, <laughs> fast forward to me getting uh, my master's degree um, while working full time. Uh, I also pursued my PhD at the same university in counseling uh, education. So my PhD is different from a counseling psychologist uh, or sports psychologist. Uh, there's no PhD in sports psychology. You would do either counseling or clinical psychology with an emphasis in sports or athletes. So my PhD was in counseling education. I'm more so focused on teaching new therapists, how to be great therapists, mm. and also how to work with a population such as athletes, uh, because it's a growing niche in the sports world. But uh, before I started my PhD, I actually um, had reached out to the NFL play, uh, league office okay. uh, to do an internship. Like I was shooting my shot on Facebook, <laughs> like I was a Facebook messenger back in 2012 like, hey, if you all have any internships, and then six months later, interviewed with them. I didn't get the internship, but um, that later led to me being able to work for the NFL Players Association. So my background historically has been in academic advising, working in trauma with children uh, who are victims of sexual abuse, physical abuse, mm -hmm. even working with offenders in the prison system. Um, so everything that I have learned uh, in my experience really has prepared me for dealing with the different types of things that arise, whether it be a crisis situation or just navigating challenges and trying to get people help, for sure. you know, in the world that I do now, working with athletes. And so, um, you know, after uh, working at the university, I transitioned into, you know, working at the NFL Players Association. So a lot of the work that I did there was remote. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because we had so many different foreign players across the country. So I took all those clinical skills that I learned um, and developed and really put that into um, uh, a, a way of working with athletes at a different level, being a therapist. And so used to seeing people in person. Exactly. And then I transitioned into, I transitioned into a role where I had to use the phone um, to understand, you know, what is a person feeling and, and I need to ask the right questions and um, so working with those former players uh, was kind of a full circle moment for me and realizing that okay I don't want to work on the back end of the problems when they arise I want to be able to get in the front of you know these types of things that happen and so ended up you know pursuing a career working in collegiate sports um, more in a preventative way and so been here at Ohio State for two years, enjoy what I do, enjoy seeing them make the progress that they're making. And I always think to myself, like, what if I had had a me mm -hmm. when I was in college, undergrad, you know, I didn't compete in sports at the collegiate level, but just being able to be like my transition into adulthood would have been, I would have had a different perspective. Much different. Know? Yes. Um, Man, so talk about, like you said, with the criminal justice and you working with sex offenders and also victims of sexual assault. What is that like for you? Haven't like, do you change in any way? Is there like a, a mind frame you have to get into to work with either group of people? 
You know, when I uh, pursued that as a possible, you know, career path for me in terms of working in the criminal justice field, but then also uh, being mindful of the victims, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess this is just my career mind, because if I think and reflect on, like, my, my career path as a therapist, I'm always looking at both sides, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So even working with student athletes, I'm always mindful of the other side in terms of from a coach's perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Even working with former players, I'm mindful of their experience, but then I'm also thinking on the other side of like, okay, the organization to provide these services for them, what are their thoughts? And so for me, I think uh, when I was working with the children who were victims of sexual abuse, to get an understanding of, kind of put myself in that position, um, therapeutically, it was like, you know, being able to work in the prison system on the other side to hear um, what these offenders are saying, doing, what the treatment is like for them. Mm-hmm. I think it, it opened my eyes to say that I don't want to work with offenders. Okay. I would prefer to work with the children, but it also gave me an understanding of being able to be working with those offenders in a group setting and be mindful of, you know, the children and some of the adult victims that I've worked mm-hmm. with and what their experiences are like, which helps me then be present in that room with these offenders to kind of say, you know, this isn't your victim, this is the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to kind of tra- challenge them uh, with that treatment model, you know, and, and, help them to understand that the things that they did have a lasting impact on the people that they offended, that they abused, that they, you know, in some cases, um, resulted in death. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gave me also a perspective from working with the children and the parents on how they can best keep their children safe. Um, because I, I often would, um, you know, as a therapist, you have to try to have on this armor of protection of mm-hmm. like, okay, this is the work that you do, but you can't take it home. Yep. And that's not always the case, right? Um, but I think even in the therapy world, um, you know, working in trauma, there are a lot of realities that, you know, as lay people, we may not want to face, but these are the things that are going on in the homes of children of adults, uh, these are things that people are doing and how do we best keep our children safe? But I think it opened my mind to the fact that like, you know, um, I'm doing God's work, mm-hmm. you know, for me to be able to work with a, a child that's a victim of abuse and to kind of feel, help them to feel empowered, to know their body, to protect their body, to process their trauma um, and holding that space. Um, and I think working with those offenders just reinforced my protection of mm-hmm. my clients in that way. Um, without a doubt, it made me a better therapist because it just gave me a different view of how easily um, children, uh, as well as other individuals who take care of them, can be groomed by perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Um there was a point in time in my career where I did uh, a training on reintegrating victims with offenders, not sex offenders, but more so, you know, you see those um, stories where, you know, the offender has, you know, um, taken 
went through that training. I did not have to, you know, be a part of that process. But the whole goal of that is for the offender to say, I, you know, I admit that I did this. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for the family to get to a point of forgiveness to where they can meet the person and really find healing and peace. Um, And quiet as it's kept, uh, you know, most people think that when we work with athletes, like, well, what do they have to deal with? Like, you know, there's their student athletes, their professional athletes, like what kind of issues do they have? Mm-hmm. Trauma. <laughs> uh, For real though. They have trauma. <laughs> right? They have anxiety, they have depression, they have things that are completely unrelated to their sport. Uh, and they use their sport to disassociate with those things mm-hmm. and avoid it. Or there may get to a point where, you know, those things are uh, exacerbated and, and those symptoms are increased to the point where it's impacting their performance. Mm-hmm. And so I often think that people look at athletes as the gladiators in, in that arena of the sports that they play. And I realize that, you know, a lot of the training and experiences that I've had prior to working with that, the athletic population have prepared me to work with the athletic population. Yeah. And I have athletes that have sexual abuse trauma have athletes that, um, you know, have had, um, who haven't processed that trauma and, you know, have used substances to numb that emotional pain. Mm-hmm. And so um, the irony that, you know, fans and, you know, people across the country alike look at you all as like, oh, they handle it better than the regular person, right? Like, mm-hmm. what do they have to deal with? A lot. Flat out a lot. Nobody believes it though. Like we, for some reason, never had a life before we started playing, you know, sports at the level to where they could see us. Like you said, we never had trauma with nothing could happen to us. Um, All because we're great athletes. I don't understand how that correlates. Like, how does that make sense? Because I'm a great athlete. I'm invincible. So I don't get it. I would like to think so. It'd be nice. Basically, by 
emotional injuries that we oftentimes don't see because we're not aware or looking for them, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that, again, um, you know, we have to get to a point where we can normalize, like, okay, this person has gone through a lot mm-hmm. and it has affected their game, but they're still thriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so, and this is how, here's the how, which I think we're trending that way of like, this is how, you know, such and such has been able to take a break from their sport, really recharge and replug and, and, and find peace and solace and heal from things that are not related mm-hmm. to scoring as many points or as many touchdowns or having as many accolades, For you know, sure. in their sport. How do we, though, normalize that and normalize it a little quicker? Because like you said, we do have Kevin Love, for example, speaking out tremendously about mental health, about him going to therapy, DeMar DeRozan, a few of the NFL players. But how do we get everybody to talk about it and also like younger athletes, for example, to accept that, even the fans, because they're they'd be mad if LeBron took a break. They call him all kinds of names, but blackball him and everything. So how do we get everyone to accept that it's okay to take a mental break? I think that you know, again, the world of sports and the community, we are trending that way when we talk about the development of uh, collegiate athletes and professional athletes. Right? You know, you have. The NBA and the NFL have stated that they have a mandated, you know, um, uh, a thing within their CBA that says they need a part-time or they can have, if they have the funds to do it, a full-time person, you know, at that team level. We also have that at the collegiate level, not at the D2 and D3, but the JUCO, but more so at, you know, the Division One, mm-hmm. you know, schools. But what about high school, right? Every young athlete doesn't just decide when they get to college that they're going to be a superstar mm-hmm. or that they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make it to the next level. Right. I often ask my clients, when did you know you were good enough to play at the division one level? Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, when I was like 11 or I was like 12 or there was this game that I had, or I realized, and I, that to me helps me to meet them where they are when they first realize like, okay, the pressure is on me Mm -hmm. to really get the scholarship, to really maintain this level of activity in terms of my talent and to progress and get better so that I can increase my chances of whatever that, that career is for me Mm -hmm. at the, you know, collegiate and professional level. But we tend to neglect the fact that a lot of our athletes are coming into college with some uh, emotional, struggles or challenges that started when they hit puberty and you know of course as a mental health, you know as a mental health professional the onset of a lot of mental illnesses is between the ages of 18 and 24 but if you look at the world that some of our young people are living in virtually digitally um they learn online they interact online mm-hmm. um you know uh, the family dynamics um you know i'll say to athletes like okay, around that time when you knew you were really great and you knew you could do this, what was happening in your life? Well, my parents were getting a divorce or, you know, I realized that I wasn't eating as much. I started smoking weed at 14. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if we shift the dynamic to being as, um, you know, all there's, again, 
all of the you know great wonderful individuals athletes who are coming out and talking about this and normalizing it we as adults get it but what about our young adolescents you know mm-hmm. in terms of the things that they're dealing with and going through and part of me says that even as though we're speaking about it to elevate the awareness mm-hmm. which is great the action behind the awareness has to start early mm-hmm. you know there's talk about high school high school high school but you know, you could get on Instagram right now and you'll probably see a number of people going live to have this conversation that you and I are having mm-hmm. about mental health, but where is that happening in the schools? Exactly. You know, how equipping the coaches to be able to recognize those signs and symptoms? How are we, are we able to work with school districts and athletic directors to say, you know, once a month, you know, outside of you bringing somebody to come in and talk about character development, Let's do a guided meditation with these young people. Mm-hmm. You know, let's do, um, I mean, if I think back to my junior, I mean, junior high and high school, I, I, I don't think I appreciated my mm-hmm. basketball coaches. I played basketball mm-hmm. and I don't think I appreciated them as much as I needed to because, mm-hmm. I mean, both of them talked about, you know, sitting and meditating and visualizing mm-hmm. before the game. They all had positive affirmations. I remember one of my, uh, my varsity bas- women's basketball coach, she would have like an affirmation for the week. Like she would uh, put it, she would give us handouts of it. She would print it out. She would post it in the locker room and she was doing that positive psychology yes. um, you know, for us. Um, but, you know, not all high school and youth coaches are created equal, but I think it starts at that macro level of educating them. And then at the center of that, at the micro level, is our student athletes mm-hmm. because your development as an athlete doesn't—it's—it's it's continuous from the time that you picked up a basketball to now mm-hmm. in terms of the transition of what you're doing as you move forward in your career. And so, um, you know, no different than human development. I feel like there's an athlete development, and one piece that we're missing to really drive home this message is talking to parents. And talking to the little ones about, you know, you can be more than your sport. Because think about it. We integrate our kids into, like, sports. Like, okay, they need to learn team, you know, teamwork and socialization. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, it goes from that to, okay, my kid can really be competitive. And in our culture, it is, you're going to play professionally. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to the NFL. You're going to go to the NBA and not... Let's take a pause. How are you? Do you want to go to the NFL? Mm-hmm. Do you want to go to the NBA? Right? And so I think there are a lot of self imposed cultural issues we put on our children um, to be more uh, without consulting with them in terms of what do they want to be and what do they want to do. Yeah. I can definitely relate to that. And I love my father, but I would say with him, there was so much pressure, like you said, to make it to the WNBA. And I wanted to go to med school. Like I wanted to study medicine while I was playing basketball. How else was I going to pay for it? And they couldn't pay for it. But he was like, no, just take like business or something. It'll be easy. And that way you don't have to worry about it um, while you're playing basketball because, you know, it's hard to balance it. And it is. But you're telling me, and I didn't, you know, internalize it like this, but that you don't even have the confidence in me to be able to maintain my grades and be a great uh, athlete at the same time. My mom, she definitely would ask me what I wanted to do, what did I want to be, and she didn't really understand, you know, still don't really understand anything about basketball, but she knew that my salary wasn't going to be 
any kind of millions of dollars like the NBA. And I don't think that's what my dad was thinking about. Like, what you mean don't be a doctor or don't be, you know, whatever it is I want to be. That's how I'm, I can make my money or as much money as I would like to make to fund the lifestyle that I like to live. Whereas a WNBA salary, they making the maybe as much as teachers. Like, you know, it don't make sense to me, but... That's something I'm still at 28 um, and don't play basketball no more. Still working through because it does affect other things that I do. Like I'm always afraid I'm going to make a wrong decision. Um, even transferring from UConn, I wanted to go to Southern Cal. I wanted to study fashion design. I love fashion. So I was like, you know, that would be perfect um, because NYU was my next, cho next choice. But again, I can't afford to pay for school. So I was like, why not, you know, who I get to be in L.A.? Um, no telling who I'm gonna meet and he was like no why would you go all the way across the world you know again when you're gonna be however far away from your family and you have a little brother and all this stuff so he like guilt tripped me into staying close to home and you know no knock to UK because I love it and it really um shaped me as a person but again at 28 I'm still questioning my next steps like worrying about what is my dad gonna say what is this person gonna say and it don't matter and I'm 28 a grown woman about on a consistent basis who are transitioning either medic retiring from their sport mm -hmm. wanting to, to, to say this isn't what I thought it was going to be mm -hmm. and I want to put myself first and my needs first and there's those hard conversations with parents like what do you mean yes. you want to transfer what do you mean you don't want to play sports anymore like what do you mean and they, you know, there's this push-pull with, you know, people see you as in your identity and you're trying to find your purpose. Yes. And when there's a tug of war, it's like, but I'm the one in the body experiencing this, living this out. I'm having to find these steps and not only, like, find my next step, be comfortable with my next step, be uncomfortable with my next step, but, like, I have to go as, to sleep at night knowing that I did what I wanted to do and made the choices that I wanted to make. You know, of course there's going to be the chatter and the judgment, but I think that um, people don't give you all as athletes enough grace to make those choices because mm -hmm. they see you as you are going to either ruin your, your athletic career. And yeah. it's like, well, you're going to be a retired athlete retired student athlete, retired professional athlete, way longer than your professional mm -hmm. career, right? And I put, um, I think on Instagram, I had put a quote that says, because um, I was I was in a session, and, and sometimes when I'm in sessions, I'm like, ooh, I said something great, I write that down. And I shared it on Instagram, and I didn't realize that it was, that it got as much attention from student athletes as it mm -hmm. did across the country. But it said, um, we have to focus on the person before we focus on the student and the athlete. Otherwise, we're at risk of losing all three. Mm. Right? You know, if we don't focus on you as a person, then you're not going to be successful as a student. Mm -hmm. And then you're not going to be successful as an athlete. Mm -hmm. And then we're at risk of saying we have a person who identifies as three different things but still doesn't know who they are. Mm -hmm. Right? It still doesn't know what their purpose is. Oh, they got a 4.0 or they're a scholar athlete. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, but they're not happy. Man, I needed you. Oh, I needed you so long ago. Oh my gosh, where were you? Lord have mercy. It's never too late though. Man, 
Because that, I mean, that's literally like, that sounds like my experience to a T because like, it was almost like I was having an outer body experience sometimes. Like I was just there, but I didn't want to be there. I always, it was like, almost like some astral projection. Like I was just trying to be anywhere, but where I was, because I knew that, like you said, I didn't make the decision to be here. I listened to somebody else. So that's tough. How, how do you help athletes out of that? So one of the things that I tend to do when I meet with athletes uh, is ask them who they are. Mm-hmm. And they'll, they'll be like, uh, who's an athlete? And I'm like, no, that's what you do. <laughs> right? That's what you do. Um, I mean, it's all, it's, or I'll say, I'm going to start this question off and then I want you to finish. And I'll say their name and then I'll pause. And sometimes they look back at me like, what do you want me to say? Like, you know, who are you? Mm-hmm. Or I'll say, like, okay, let's say we're having a versus challenge. Like, you know, the last versus was, like, Escape versus SWV, right? On, you know, we all tuned yeah. in on Instagram. Like, okay, so we had a versus challenge with you. Mm-hmm. You as the athlete versus who you are as a person, who will win? Athlete. You know, and like, <laughs> the athlete. I'm like, that's a problem, right? Because we at least want to be neck and neck, or mm-hmm. we want to have more attributes of you that are not tied to you dribbling a ball or you, you know, hitting people really hard. You know, yes, there are things that you are developing as a human being um, in that atmosphere, in that aspect of who you are, but that's just one one aspect, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I, you know, talk to them about who they are um, versus what they do. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I really like to do just to get an understanding of their headspace and how they, their internal dialogue, because mm-hmm. I'll have, and not just my athletes when I was working in private practice, I would my um, clients write a letter six months mm-hmm. to themselves from now. Um, and I do it as well. I mean, every quarter, once a, once a year, I'd say, um, I'll write a letter to myself, typically around the time of like November, December. Okay. And I will put an end date of it of May. And so I always um, mail that letter to a close friend of mine and then have them actually read the letter um, to me, mm-hmm. like record it in like a voice memo mm-hmm. and send it to me so I can hear it from their voice. Wow. Um, oftentimes I've had them just mail it back and I open it. But I do that with my clients and I'll say to them, write a letter six months to yourself from now. Um, because then it puts them in that headspace to think more futuristically about the things that they want to accomplish mm-hmm. and not overthink about, oh, these are the things that are not going to happen. So in a way, I'm setting them up unconsciously to really be present, be in that mind frame of like six months from now, how do you want to feel? Mm-hmm. What did you hope to accomplish in these six months? And not just you know, I wanted to graduate from college, but, you know, really put forth the effort to having a good self-care plan mm-hmm. and like, you know, you are more rested and, you know, you survived that whatever, whatever. And when that six, when they finish it, I keep it. Okay. And then on that six month mark date, I will give it back to them mm-hmm. and uh, they'll read it. And, you know, we tend to highlight like, like Okay, this is where you were, and this is the, was the headspace that you were in. Mm-hmm. Where are you now? So it's almost like you're you're writing a futuristic journal entry, um, but the, but the letter is, um, you know, it's meaningful in the way that it gets you in that mindset to really. 
understand that, you know, life doesn't happen within a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen to us in a week that can Mm -hmm. challenge us, yes. But looking at your progress, you know, six months to a year versus this instantaneous thing, because as athletes, you've been told you got to make adjustments, you got to make a fast. Mm -hmm. Life doesn't work that way. Your your, your (laughs) emotional and psychological development Mm -hmm. doesn't work that way. Yes, you can study something seven times to have it in your short-term memory, but in terms of you getting from being in that uncomfortable, I mean, that comfort zone Mm -hmm. to the fear zone to the learning zone to be in the growth zone, you know, it takes a lot of trial and error. And what I, I get people to understand is that who you are as an athlete isn't who you are as a person is just an aspect of you. You know, you don't go into the doctor's office dribbling a ball. <laughs> we should, <laughs> no. Right, right, right. You know, um, but it, it's one of those things where, you know, when I'm talking to athletes, I, I tell them, you know, we're going to find out who you are. And someone's like, this kind of scary. No, it's actually great. I get excited. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, but, but I implemented that technique because when I was in my freshman year in college, I took a kinesiology class that wasn't, uh, it was a world adventure dynamics class. Like it was the, the way that they coined it. It was we, my cohort of freshmen that I came in through this program at Texas A&M, there were like five or six of us. Um, we did all these different um, activities around team building. Uh, we did a tightrope. We did zip line. It was more so about challenging ourselves mm-hmm. physically, but in a way to do something that was different beyond just your regular kinesiology, you know, class of like running and, and lifting weights or anything in terms of the aerobic aspect of things. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, one of the activities that we had to do was write a letter to ourselves five years from now. So as a freshman, I wrote a letter to my not senior self, but the year after mm-hmm. I got out of college. Man. Do you know that those people mailed that letter to me? And everything in that letter I had accomplished. Wow. I I had I had wrote that letter and just I, I didn't even keep a copy of it. I had typed it up. I thought it was just for an assignment. I was like, okay, I just need to get my little hundred, you know, grade. Typed it up. It was like four pages. Um, and I, you know, gave it to her and they mailed it back to us. And it was more so not just, um, I wanted to graduate college and go to grad school. It was, I hope that by this time you have understand how beautiful and amazing that you are. You know, that you don't have to ascribe to the things that people want you to be, but who you are destined to be. Like, those types of things. And then, you know, freshman in college, I mean, I must have been on some new wave stuff because I was, I was reading that. I was like, I was 18. I was so serious Man. Um, back in the day. But, you know, that's what I challenge my clients on. It's like, I don't want you to be like, okay, well, by this time I've won a uh, a championship, or we made it to the Big Ten. No, you know what? What you you have almost like anywhere from six weeks to a year with me, mm-hmm. or more, depending on if you stay at Ohio State, and I'm going to help guide you in life, not just your talent. Mm-hmm. 
what do you want to accomplish? You know, um, because it's huge to get free therapy as a college student. Um, and you don't have to worry about like being on the wait list mm-hmm. as like you know, regular college students. Like you got candidates at your, you know, not at your disposal, but you know, on a weekly basis mm-hmm. to help you, excuse me, work through some things, you know, why not? You know, and I do therapy in a way that is beneficial, mm-hmm. but of course for us as black people, Listen, I don't want to go in there talking about yep. it. Like, how does that make you feel when there's no connection? Mm-hmm. But I think for us as black people, I sometimes am a auntie. I am a big sister. I am a cousin. I am a lot of different things mm-hmm. uh, to people. And they recognize like, oh, it's like talking to Candace. It's just like having a regular conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, but I'm doing a lot of therapy with you mm-hmm. and getting you to realize like, Wow. You know, so, um, you know, and I mean, I tell people sometimes I do hood therapy. Black therapy looks different from therapy from our counterparts. And, you know, what I'm finding is that while I am black, I also know that every black experience, while there's some commonalities, I treat everybody with, we may or may not connect. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Right? But, um, what I found to be successful for me is that um, these young athletes know, like, Candace is going to call me on my BS. Mm-hmm. Candace is going to help me get to a place where I feel pretty confident in who I am mm-hmm. and process my trauma and, or, or, or whatever I'm feeling, not with judgment. And she's going to, you know, really... Um, uh, what is it? I tell people sometimes you can get, you know, what for us in the black family and black people, it's like, you know, your mama can give you that look. Right. And I, I, I add those aspects culturally into what I do because, and they respect me for mm-hmm. it. Right? It's, it's like, you know, Miss Candace is if, if I step out of bounds, it's not like she's going to be like, oh, let's have a conversation. How does that make you feel? Uh, I'm, I'm usually calling them out on, you know, we, there's always a need behind the behavior. Yes. You know, um, yes. and I'm here to help you heal, but I'm here to help you develop the skill set. So just as much as you run on that track and mm-hmm. you have coaches that help you develop those skills, I'm helping you to develop those skills mentally to know yourself better um, and to pivot and make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Because with the football you know, team, when I work with them, I tell the guys, like, if you stand flat-footed, what's going to happen on the field? They're like, you're going to get bulldozed. What do you think happens? What do you think happens in life when you don't have the emotional agility to be able to maneuver through things? You know, it's, you know, just like you have to run a different route in the game, you got to run a different route in life. You want to be on your toes. You want to be mindful of those different things. You know, anxiety can definitely um, get the best of you. Depression can definitely have you in a space where you have lack of motivation, where you don't feel inspired. Um, and those things are okay to acknowledge mm-hmm. and let's work through them, For sure. you know, uh, versus ignoring them. For sure. I think what you said about 
that connection is so important because my first experience with therapy was my coach at UK telling me to go. And the same thing, being a black person, my parents always telling me, you crazy if you go to therapy or like, you know, mental illness. I don't even know what they used to call it, but it was not mental illness. They used to call it crazy, psychopaths, all of that. So that's initially what I felt. And I was like, you know, why is he telling me to go to therapy? I felt crazy. So then he got my position coach, who was a black woman, to try to convince me to go. She asked me why I didn't want to go, told her those exact words, and she said, no, that's not what it is. And she was basically explaining to me, like, how you're saying is that it's going to help me work through things, just help me live and feel better. So I went, and it was some little old white lady that looked like a librarian. And first thing she asked me, how are you feeling? Ma'am, I don't know. Ain't that why we here, bro? You tell me. Like, what? And then my second experience was in Chicago, and I was very, very blessed to be able to also receive um, free therapy from the university I was going to for grad school at the time. And it was a black woman from the south side of Chicago, and she was auntie all the way. And just like you, those nonverbal cues were like super effective. And there were even times where I felt like she really did come out of therapist mode and was like my auntie or mom's sister because some things I just wasn't getting. And so she had to like, you know, go there with me some of the times, but I took it so well, like you said, like we received that better and again trusting my position coach versus my head coach is a testament to how we trust our own people people who look like us more than we do anybody else so that's super important right because there there is a um there's an unspoken rule but i, I look at it as it's, it's a legacy in the sense that you know there's the saying that all you know skin folk get kin folk mm-hmm. but but I think historically, because we all have experienced things and have challenged our mental health um, that are outside of us in terms of, you know, microaggressions, racism, discrimination, mm-hmm. and even the vicarious trauma of seeing somebody else that looks like us be uh, physically harmed mm-hmm. or emotionally harmed at the hands of racist, you know, individuals, mm-hmm. we're going to take care of one another and mm-hmm. in the helping it's proven scientifically that you know when a black woman has a black doctor when she's giving birth Mm -hmm. her baby as well as her life is you know 10 to maybe 20 maybe 100 times you know more susceptible to having a a positive outcome of the birth uh, in her life versus Mm -hmm. being in the care of someone who is not a black practitioner or doctor and so for me in my role I treat everyone with care you know but there's this other part of me that says if I were in that counseling seat at that age who would I want Mm -hmm. you know to be managing my mental health and you know for us culturally it is your mom your auntie It it is the person that can look at you and be like hey Mm-hmm. for everything that you do. 
Um, thank you so much for, you know, not just listening, but really challenging me to be the best version of myself. Because I'll tell them in a minute, like, look, you know, you hear my voice in your head <laughs> in the background. Like, Candace is like, really? Like, one time, um, I did this thing where I was on virtual and uh, one of my clients had said something and I pulled up the Word document and I typed it out. And they were like, what is that? I said, you just said that. That was what you just said. And they were like, it don't make no sense. I said, so how is it supposed to make sense to me? <laughs> how is it supposed to make sense to me? No and way. Said that, you know, or... You know, I have all these different isms and, you know, it's it's one of those things where when you see the clients on the other end, like, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes, you know what, you know what, you just did a mic drop. I'm done. I'm just going to shut this down. I'm going to go about my business, you know, mm-hmm. or they'll be like, I hate you. And I'm like, that means that I'm doing my job. For real. <laughs> doing you a know? great so, job. I, I think that, you know, to your point earlier of us bringing awareness to such a topic, we have to also create spaces for black therapists, mm-hmm. men and women, or those who identify, you know, across the spectrum in terms of LGBTQIA+, to be able to have a spot and a seat, not just at the table, mm-hmm. but in the training room, in the therapist chair, you know, in administration to really push for the needs of our black indigenous people of color because, you know, it's just a different dynamic. And, sure. and, you know, in 2021, we can say that. I mean, we've gone through COVID. Um, our athletes, our black athletes, have been in situations where um, they've had to advocate for, as well as experience, you know, the death and harm of black people mm-hmm. at the end of the piece. Um, their awareness is heightened at, you know, the racism around them and how they have navigated through that. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult and it's hard, but, you know, having a black person on staff, having a therapist that can speak to the cultural competency and wants to grow that within this space, within, you know, sports is important. I see so many different people who are like, oh, I want to do what you do. I want to be a therapist and I want to work with athletes. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I didn't start out working with athletes. Mm-hmm. My competency level in my profession, I, I got thrown in the deep end of the pool and working in trauma and working with sex offenders and I worked with a diverse population of people mm-hmm. uh, to the point where most people don't know. I used to work with children who were victims of sexual abuse who mm-hmm. were um, Hispanic, who were English speaking, but their parents were did not speak any English. Mm-hmm. So I had translators in my sessions with the parents or sometimes with the kiddos. And, you know, in the little, with the little kids. And so when you talk about cultural competency and being able to adapt, it isn't just let me understand what are those things that happen to you as black people? It is how do I adapt as a therapist to make sure that my client is as comfortable as possible in their element um, so that I can best help them reach their goals. But that's one thing that um, I know continues to be driving force is cultural, cultural cultural competency has to be at the forefront of good therapy otherwise we're missing a lot of people um, who need it um, because there's that stigma behind these people don't know they don't know nothing about what I gotta deal with yep. 
I'm not gonna go talk to them. I mean, if I look at my own development I, as a as a therapist who has um, participated in therapy, all of my therapists have been black. Mm. Black women or just black? Black women. Okay. Um, I've entertained the idea of black men as a therapist um, for whatever reason in terms of availability. Just couldn't, you know, get on anybody's schedule. But every therapist that I have had mm-hmm. has been a black female. Um, yeah. Does that does that matter? Do you think that that really matters? Yes, you know, because a lot of what I do um, is dependent upon on how well I am, mm-hmm. right? And to have a, for me personally, to have a black female as a therapist um, who can speak to the, you know, who I'm trusting to help with my own mental health in the sense of me being able to take good care of myself mm-hmm. also understands the lived experience of what it's like to be a black woman in a predominantly white um working culture mm-hmm. and navigating through those different things for sure you know which is what um i think i i was you know looking and needing you know at the time that i you know have sought therapy uh, but they understand the black female lived experience mm-hmm. uh, from a standpoint of all the societal messages and pressures that we get. Um, and, you know, I also believe in supporting um, therapists and medical professionals who are black, mm-hmm. you know, because that in itself has its own biases as well. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, not to say that, you know, not all black practitioners and medical providers don't have any other, you know, clients that are very diverse, mm-hmm. but just the biases of medical care and within the medical community, um, you know, them being seen as reputable individuals who are really good at their job, mm-hmm. even, you know, in their own uh, institutional corporate, you know, setting, you know, is important as well. And so supporting them, like when I lived in DC, I had a black uh, primary care doctor, my dermatologist was black, I had a black dentist. I mean, everybody's black, Uh, you know, to take care of me. Uh, And I had found a black doctor here in Columbus. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing. And I remember sitting there with her and she said, what do you do? And I told her, she was like, do you have private practice? And I was like, no, not in Columbus. And she said, I need you to get a private practice together, Candace. She said, we have so many black patients that come in here and they need therapy, but we don't have anybody black mm. to transfer them, like to refer them to. And just her hearing my, you know, doctor talk about how black people are, have, like they're stressed out, their blood pressure is high, holistically, we want to get them. And she was like, they're ready. Mm-hmm. But the wait time to get them with someone who doesn't look like them doesn't understand what they're dealing with um is six to eight weeks and she said by that time they're not really interested in going man yeah they done body <laughs> they think they right. can get through it on their own by that point right but I, but i think there has to be a shift for us as black people related to the acceptance of therapy mm-hmm. because to your point a lot of what we do has some um, i guess it mimics you know support in a lot of ways. I mean, culturally, we are people who have fo- 
folks in our family that are not blood related to us mm-hmm. that we call cousin, yep. that we call auntie. You know, um, the the church has been this support group for us. Mm-hmm. When I talked to churches back when I lived in DC, I told them like the support groups that y'all have in terms of ministries are support groups, small group is support group. I said, you know, the church is a community where people come together on Sunday to hear a message, you know, now outside of the infrastructure of it, ideally, there's a sense of community and support uh, amongst like-minded people related to certain things, but prayer and therapy work hand in hand. Um, You know, if you are a believer in that regard, not just, oh, you just need to pray about it. Um, Man, it's my grandma yeah. right there. That is my grandma. You just, need to pray about it. you just need to pray about it. But think about it. How many times have you heard your people in your family say, ooh, my nerves is bad? Every day. Still. That's anxiety, right? That's anxiety. That's anxiety. You're like, oh, my nerves is bad. No, your nerves aren't bad. That's anxiety. You're going to run up my pressure. That's anxiety. <laughs> Bro, that's uh, that's crazy. Like you said, all black families have so many commonalities. But if you tell them that's anxiety, what are they going to do? What is their response going to be? Hey, you don't pray about it. You <laughs> the Lord in prayer. And oh. then I got you because God said be anxious for nothing. Well, insert God said, have your nerves be bad for nothing. Right? So, Bro. like, there are things that we have grown up as a culture hearing in the homes of our black families that we never equated it to anxiety. Yes. We never equated it to trauma. We never equated it to, you know, people say, you know, he throw it off or, or you know, like he, he got it all together. Like, okay, he's mentally ill. <laughs> all right. You're too smart for okay. him, dog. You're too smart for him. <laughs> but that, so that's the thing is like, how great would it be as we continue to evolve as black people mm-hmm. to change those isms to something more positive? Yes. I wish we would. I wish mm-hmm. we would. Because it would change my bloodline. I mean, for sure. Generational curses would be gone. Wouldn't be no such thing. If I could just get my, my parents to say it. Because my brother, I have a 16-year-old brother. And he is very, like, adamant about learning about mental health and being on top of his. He meditates, he reads, he journals, everything. Um, and he's learned from me, my struggle with mental illness, with my mental health. And But if we could just get our parents to just say something, just admit that they struggle with it, or even say that we struggle with it, we'd be cool. But they won't. They won't do it. Well, you know, it's, it's the other interesting part is that if you had diabetes, right, you'd have to check your sugar, make sure you manage it. If you mm-hmm. had lupus, if you had high blood pressure, right, what's the difference between lupus and depression? Man. Right? What's the difference between diabetes and depression? Right? You know, we can't just think about training ourselves and looking at our bodies from the neck down. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, our heart is beating, but it's circulating blood that releases oxygen so that our brain, why is it that our brain is at the top of our head and not at the middle part of our body or the bottom of our feet? It's at the top. So why isn't it the first thing that we think about when we talk about our health? Our brain is connected to our spinal cord that sends nerve endings to the rest of our body to communicate to it. Mm. Right? When you die or your brain stops, I mean your heart stops, right? There's still brain activity happening 
the science has shown that you are still there's still stuff happening here because you know the lack of oxygen that is going towards your brain mm-hmm. but like why else would we have a brain in our head you feel me <laughs> to not use it apparently that's what i think right. you feel right. me and it's, right and as athletes when people are like oh you know as much weight as you do and conditioning for your hamstring or your your quadriceps or your biceps and triceps your brain is the biggest muscle in your body. Man. Right? And it is divided into various different parts related to, you know, logically the things that we have to deal with and do. And remember, like, you have a right brain and a left brain. Your left brain is looking at all the different things that you have to deal with on a daily basis and, and processing information. And your right brain is more focused on you being more present, being more creative, right? Like, yes, we can't see it, but it exists in there, and there's various different parts that control emotion, right? So to sit here and say, oh, you're weak because you can't control that, genetically, all of us have the ability and the tendency and the susceptibility to go through life where we're going to be challenged by things that are going to affect us. And if we don't take the time to really get the sleep we need to recharge, to really take a step back and understand is my anxiety playing tricks on me? Because that's what anxiety does. But you think things are worse than what they are. There's no person in this world that is, you know, um, not susceptible to dealing with life challenges or have handled them perfectly. Yeah. You hear it all the time. They talked about Jesus. And <laughs> Jesus also had, you know, some depression and probably anxiety and fear as it has been demonstrated in the Bible. Why else would God say they'd be anxious for nothing? Exactly. Somebody's anxious. <laughs> you funny. Right? Like, there are certain things that have happened where people are like, you know, that's what the verse say, but like, let's look at the context of it. Why else would that come up in the Bible if it didn't exist? Exactly. And it existed right? way back then, so why wouldn't it now? Right. You know, we, we are, we are are people who experience life challenges and the thought that you always have to have triumph at the end isn't the narrative for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You can be pissed off and upset. You can be, you know, like, yes, the goal is to recognize how did you get there and how can you maneuver it? But, you know, again, black people, we get whooped and I'm going to give you something to cry about. You just want it. <laughs> That's real, though. That's real. Right? What you crying for? I'm going to give you something to cry about. I I overstepped the boundary and did not obey you. I got disciplined for it, but then now I can't cry. Exactly. Because it hurts. Right? So that's the thing that I'm talking about in terms of us being able to get to a place where, you know, there is free expression of emotion because emotions are meant to be expressed, not fixed. You know, to discipline a child in a physical way and then say, what you crying for? We all have had that experience. Yes, yes. Like, I'm crying because, and to have to hold back the tears Mm -hmm. and to not let the tears fall because then, or not express anger and frustration, because then you're going to get with people. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and you see how in the black family, those things are, in my mind, ways that perpetuate that, 
wrong people business, uh, be seen but not heard. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna keep something to cry about. My nerves is bad. Like we, we, all of those things have an emotional undertone to them that we don't necessarily. Uh, I think we're getting better at it, but there's mm-hmm. always room for improvement. You know, in terms of like, how can I equip my child to be able to go into the real world and come back and say, you know, mom, today I was. I was pissed off. I mean, you don't want a five-year-old saying piss, but like I was upset and mad. Yeah. Right? We judge them by their behavior. You get a folder that says he was on green today. They were on red today. They were on yellow today, and they give you a reason as to why. So if we're going to be that judgmental related to their behavior so that they can be good kids and good students, why aren't we teaching them how to be good people mm-hmm. for themselves in that regard? So I feel like that's to circle back to the full question of how do we how do we increase the awareness around this, not just in the sports community, but just in general. I pray that there's this new wave of like, this is how we can create uh, a, a foster, um, you know, the growth of young minds mm-hmm. by allowing them to express themselves and not say, okay, well, you, you're going to get whooped. Now, there's, there's mm-hmm. a difference between, we all know this, we've mm-hmm. all experienced this, most of us who've been black are black. You don't talk back. You don't call nobody a liar. There's just certain things that you don't do. You. Right? But how do we foster that in a way where we can allow that this, the kid to, to say how they feel, but it not be deemed disrespectful, right? Because it's like, you don't challenge your parents. You don't set boundaries with your parents. You don't call them out or anything. You just say, yes, ma'am. No, sir. And you just keep pushing. Mm-hmm. Which I've noticed as young people, specifically athletes, too, transition into adulthood, having to have that conversation with their parents or set that boundary or hear, like, you you think you've grown, but you're mm-hmm. not grown, is, is a push and pull for some of them, too. To, to Very get. true. Yeah, because I tell them, like, you know, yes, you're in college. You are a young adult working towards your independence. Tell your parents that you're grown and you're an adult. They're probably going to be like, "We'll pay you on." Yep. Money. Yep. <laughs> With right. that same look you got now. <laughs> right. Right. Like, so if you're so grown, then what do you need my money for? Yep. You know, man, it's your money that you get from your scholarship and have a great day, mm-hmm. right? So I tell my athletes like, you, you have to be mindful that how the language you use is important. But share with them that you're a young adult working towards your independence. So yes, you're going to be dependent upon your parents. But see if there is a compromise. And if they're not willing to compromise, then that means that you need to take a really deep dive into what does independence look like for you mm-hmm. and how can you maintain that on your own. I love that. Man, I'm going to have you talk to my parents because, again, I'm 28, feel like I'm 8. Now, <laughs> last question I got for you, Doug. What advice do you have for black women in predominantly white spaces? That's very so general, I, but what, what would you I, tell us? I, I would say imposter syndrome is a real thing. Um, and understand that, and this is speaking from personal experience, um, because I feel like if I don't share the things that I have experienced as a black woman um, that, you know, I want to be able to, to, to extend, you know, 
some care and understanding to someone else who may listen to this and be like, oh, yes, I feel you. Because as as Black women, we oftentimes are going through things emotionally. And when we don't hit the mark in our jobs or our careers, we equate that to failure. Mm -hmm. Not realizing that, oh, I could be anxious. I could be grieving. I could be depressed. There could be things that are penetrating my emotional health that I haven't even realized because I'm so used to being a strong black woman. Mm -hmm. I'm so used to rising to the occasion or not feeling like I want to rise to the occasion, but I have to. Mm -hmm. And so I would say to that, you know, that group of of women who are African-American, black, whatever you decide, you know, whatever you call yourself in Mm -hmm. that regard, but that realize that your mental health is important mm-hmm. and imposter syndrome is a real thing and that you're not failing you need to take some time away and take some time for you mm-hmm. you know every unplanned event is not a call to battle you know as sisters we are we are equipped we're like look do i need my boxing gloves <laughs> do i need some rocks to throw at somebody i got some bullets what what i'm not waving the white flag i'm not waving the white flag mm-hmm. so you know they feel a froggy, they can jump because I got a lot of ammo. Like, uh, you know, we <laughs> always have a bag full of tricks and tools and tips because we have to constantly adjust. Mm-hmm. But it's okay to say, I'm not my best self. I need a break. Um, let me take a step back and really assess how I'm feeling because the minute that we're met with opposition, we go into not defense mode in the sense of like, we don't take ownership of things. Mm-hmm. We go into protection mode for ourselves, but that it, that in itself takes a lot of energy out of us, mm-hmm. you know? And so sometimes we feel like we are speaking as loud as we can to advocate for ourselves, but the people on the other end have us on mute mm-hmm. and that definitely uh, wipe us out. And I think too, um, I kind of coined this year for myself as the year of the black woman, asking for what you deserve, mm-hmm. asserting yourself and what you, you know, in, in terms of what you need and, you know, what do you have to lose at this point? Mm-hmm. Your life, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, you're more susceptible to bad mental health and bad physical health. If you don't speak up for the things that you need, mm-hmm. you know, why is it that we are the most vocal? We are the most dependent upon, but we, don't speak up for ourselves in the spaces that we need to speak up in, knowing that we're deserving of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of what has to do with that is that we are so used to being at the front of the line, not realizing that we can lead from the back. That's real. Yeah. You know? So that's real. So I think we have to, you know, I'm, I'm always, my friends will tell you, Candace is someone like ask for what you need to ask for. You know, don't take that job if they're not getting you the money that you're worth. Um, you know, at this point, what are they going to do? Tell you no. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's for you is not going to miss you. You know, but I think as black women, we have to get comfortable with saying, I'm not doing that for free. Or I'm not doing that because it doesn't speak to or align with you know, my goals and my morals and my values. Or we also have to be mindful of that you know, we don't have to be like, let me tell you this, that, and the third. We can sit back. Yep. You know, we have to preserve self-preservation for us um, is important because I think there's societal pressure 
there's pressure within our community as black people and then amongst ourselves as black women yeah. you know when if you're an athlete you don't want to be like people are like well what you up to now <laughs> man I answer this question again again <laughs> Well, how is that going to work towards your goal? You know, people aren't going to understand your vision and your purpose. Man. But I tell you what, they're going to be there to clap for you when you do. Because you feel me? I, I, my journey was I went from being an academic advisor, making like, you know, and I have no qualms about this, probably like $40,000 as an academic advisor at my first job out of college and mm-hmm. I quit. I walked away from I was burnt out. I was like, see y'all, I was 20. I started at 22. I left oh. at like 20, 23, 20, no, I, I left at 25, 26. I was there for about three years. Okay. And like, I, I literally put my letter together and said, I'm home. I didn't have a job lined wow. up. I didn't have a job lined up. I left. And I needed to because I had to do an internship for my master's program. And the job that I had applied for, I didn't get. One of my good friends had got it, but she ended up not being able to uh, fulfill that part-time job because she was in grad school. And so I was the next in line. Mm. And they called me. And then once I, that was at the Children's Advocacy Center where I worked with the child abuse victims. And then when I decided that I wanted to transition into sports, I was working on my PhD, also working full-time as a child therapist. Imagine being in a PhD program and working with children who are talking about being physically abused, sexually Mm -hmm. abused every day, and then decided, okay, burnout is real again, Mm -hmm. and I want to pursue a a, a career in sports. So at the time, that was... um, I was working on my uh, PhD. I was doing most of my research was on student athlete mental health. So I was doing different independent research projects on um, different topics related to student athletes. And uh, at the time, the university that I had worked at full time, the athletic department had a grad assistantship. It was an undergraduate job. Mm. I called it a grad assistantship and I left my job as a child therapist to work for seven dollars and twenty five cents. What? Yes, I was twenty eight at the time. Yep, I was twenty eight at the time. Twenty eight over twenty? No, twenty eight at the time, and or twenty nine. I was twenty eight or twenty nine. I was living at home with my parents because I had decided, okay, if I'm going to go back to school and get my PhD, then guess what? We're going to be roommates. <laughs> <For So real. laughs> I was roommates with my parents, and I was working full time as a child therapist. And then I decided to take a step back and that latter part of my PhD program said, okay, if I want to, I didn't get the internship with the league NFL office. I, I want to etch my way into sports. And I was a assistant for compliance for six months, $7.25. I had one bill, which was a car note, and I had paid my car off. I had saved the rest of my money. I was living with my family. And uh, I was at an event and somebody was like, you should uh, work for the NFL Players Association. I was like, what is that? I want to work with the league. <laughs> and then I went online and applied for a job. This was May of 2014. Okay. And, and um, ended up getting a job at the PA, at the NFL PA in June 
that that was coming, right? If, at, similar to where you are, mm-hmm. I was there. I, I had manifested things. I was networking with people. I was, I mean, I, I just had this hope of like, it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. And what's for me is going to find me. And sure enough, it did. But when I was working for $7.25, it was like, I'm going to work on my dissertation. I'm going to get experience. Here mm-hmm. I am, 28 years old, have had two jobs that were salary. And I am, you know, people are like, well, what is she doing now? Mm-hmm. What is she doing at the department? Minding my business? Shoot. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, and so I knew temporarily that I needed to get that experience, but it wasn't in my mind that, okay, um, this is something I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I was like, excuse me, I have to take bold steps and step out of faith. And I did that. And um, looking back at that journey, you know, people see, oh, what you're doing now, but they don't realize, like, there was some some counting of some coins and and making sure some saving of some coins, too, Mm -hmm. and, and really... Uh, getting some doors shut in my face and and going up with things that I didn't get and still brushing myself off and saying, you know what, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And I want to be prepared. So I was, mm-hmm. preparation means opportunity. So, you know, if I could give you anything, uh, it is continue to, to remain faithful and operate out of purpose because nothing happens by chance, only by purpose. Yeah. Um, I would be remiss if I sat up here and said, oh, yeah, my, my career path has been one that was just, mm-hmm. you know, easy. Mm-mm. I mean, I had given myself a timeline. If I don't get into this business by this time, then since we got to find something else to do, because uh, my parents are like, so you going to keep chasing this here sports situation or not? And it all worked out. I think so thank you for being here um, and thank you for speaking your truth and, and helping others um, the people that you are able to impact every day helping them speak their truth I think what you've done and what you do now is tremendous especially um, you know your representation for for me and other young black women other young black people period so thank you for doing that thank you for being on the show again thank you Speak Your Truth. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Please remember that Speak Your Truth is simply a podcast uh, meant to be educational. We are not a mental health service. Thank you.